0: So my name is Joel Bakken. I'm a professor of law at the University of British Columbia and also a writer and filmmaker and just uh, released a a new book and film about uh, corporations or power in the world and what we need to do about it. And my vision of a better world is kind of laid out uh, in that book and film, but uh, to try to encapsulate it I think that we need to move to a world where the parts of us as individuals that are about love, about care, uh, about not exploiting each other and not using each other, those parts of us somehow get reflected in the institutional and collective norms that govern us. Um, I think that is, if, if you look at history, as human beings, we're incredibly complicated. Uh, you know, we're, we're mixes of self-interest and, and sort of goodness and care for others and selflessness and selfishness. All of those things are in us. And if you look at history, and especially the last 200 years, we've taken a particular set Uh, a particular side of ourselves. And we've said, we're gonna model our societies around that, around individualism, competition, exploitation, all of those things. Um, So I guess the better world is really a world that reflects the better parts of who we are. (laughs)
1: Hi, I'm Mark Laren young and thanks for joining me for Scanna, a podcast about orcas, oceans and the environment for fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. In 2003, lawyer Joel Bakken made a movie that changed the world. The corporation paved the way for occupying Wall Street. It changed the way people saw corporations, and it changed the way corporations saw themselves. Okay. As you're about to find out maybe it just changed the way corporations presented themselves to us as our friends as our good neighbors as our saviors over the last several years joel's been writing directing with jennifer abbott and executive producing the new corporation the unfortunately necessary sequel and it's not just necessary it's essential and it feels like it was shot yesterday because after they finished the movie The world was hit by a certain pandemic, so they went back to shooting. They finished the movie again, and then a police officer in Minneapolis strangled George Floyd for 8 minutes and 46 seconds, and they went back to filming their movie. Variety calls the new corporation a more profound documentary than the first one, deeper, headier, and scarier. Okay, so how does this relate to orcas, oceans, and the environment? Because no matter how much you and I reuse, recycle, and repent, the real environmental threats are coming from corporations. As always, Scan is brought to you by our pod at patreon.com. So if you like what we're up to, please help us share more stories by joining our pod and sponsoring us at patreon.com. You can also visit our site at Scanner.org, where you can make one-time donations via Ko-Fi. Also, please, please subscribe. You can also help us out by buying my books about orcas. Find out more about my whale books, and ebooks, and audio versions at orcaseverywhere.com, or buy my books that aren't about orcas, like Never Shoot a Stampede Queen. They're all for sale wherever you buy books, and if you can support your local bookstore, please do. We are also doing a new podcast, Orca Bites, where we feature shorter bite-sized pieces about orcas, oceans, eco-ethics, and the environment, featuring guests like Wade Davis, David Suzuki, Alexandra Morton, Daniel Polly, and more. And now, Joel Bakken on the secret origins of the corporation, the ugly truth about corporations, and why corporations are considered persons, but orcas aren't. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I remember talking to you en route to Banff, like, (laughs) sorry, in a bus, in a bus at Banff en route to some party where you were telling me about this movie you were doing about corporations and I was trying to picture it. So
0: (laughs) that, that was a while ago. That was a long time ago. Now I remember that though. I remember you. But it I just remember
1: thinking it sounded so cool, but I was trying to picture what's a movie about corporations going to look like. <laughs> so, uh, can you talk about how that came together in the first place? How you yeah, went? Sure. I'm going to make. A, how you went? I, was the book first? Like where did the idea for this spring from?
0: Well, the book and the film and the ideas actually sprang from a long, long uh, time before they actually were produced. And it was really when I was sitting in my corporate law class in law school, having done a psychology degree where I learned about psychopaths and human behavioral pathologies and all those kinds of things. Um, And we were learning about corporations, and we were learning that they were persons, uh, that the law sort of created them, constituted them, recognized them as these artificial beings. And we were also learning that one of the fundamental principles of corporate law was that corporations and the managers and directors who run them have to always decide what they're going to do and act in the best interests of the corporation. And it kind of hit me like a, like a brick sitting in that class. I thought, wow, that's really interesting. We create this person and then we imbue it with a personality that says it can only act in its own self-interest. It can't act in ways that care for others or for the environment or for nature or for non-human animals or, or any of that. It always has to act in its own self-interest. And what is that self-interest basically the collective financial interests of the shareholders that constitute the corporation. I thought that is really crazy. We've created a person and then we've imbued it with essentially a psychopathic personality. Um, And that idea was just kind of in my brain through law school, through graduate school, um, through when I started teaching law. um, And I finally decided uh, around the time I had, sort of finished my first book and gone through my first hurdle as a as a law professor i thought i'm going to look at that question i'm going to write an academic book about the sort of pathology of the corporate person um and it was around that time i met mark akbar uh we were both uh pallbearers at a funeral actually of a mutual friend uh and we were sort of at the uh the buffet after and sort of eating our sandwiches and whatnot started talking uh i he told me that he had made a film about Noam Chomsky manufacturing consent, Noam Chomsky in the media, which was like one of my all time favorite films. And I was just gobsmacked. I was like, oh my God, (laughs) I'm talking to this person who made this incredible film. And we started talking and I told him about this sort of book idea that I was doing on the corporation. He told me he was thinking of doing a film on globalization. This was the late 1990s. One thing led to another and before I knew it, we were making a film together and this academic book project kind of morphed into a more popular uh, nonfiction book project and uh, haven't looked back since.
1: Wow. Can you talk about how the unfortunately necessary sequel came about and when you made the choice to dive into this again?
0: Yeah, it was was a very um, sort of defined moment when uh, the idea for the unfortunately necessary sequel to The Corporation uh, hit me again like a brick. This time I was sitting in a theater in downtown Vancouver watching The Corporation 10 years after uh, it had first been released at a big party uh, that was celebrating its release, and lots of people came to see it. Maybe you were there. I can't remember. Um, but about halfway through the film, um, I was sitting there thinking, you know, I mean, we'd been drinking champagne and partying and all this stuff, and everybody was dressed in their nice clothes. Um, and about halfway through the film, I was like, what the are we celebrating here? Like, here we are, 10 years out from the film, and every single thing that the film addressed, uh, climate change, uh, the uh, species extinction, uh, the rise of uh, of anti-democratic movements. I mean, everything, inequality, racial, economic inequality, colonialism, every single issue had gotten worse. And here we were drinking champagne. And not only had every issue gotten worse, but corporations were bigger, they were more powerful. They were more of a threat to democracy. States were, governments were, were more cowering uh, in the face of their power. And at the same time to sort of, you know, tie it up in a bow, corporations had begun saying uh, shortly after the first film came out that they were gonna change their game. They heard all the criticisms. They were gonna become good now. They were gonna become good actors, sustainable, socially responsible. Uh, they were gonna become the solutions to the world problems of the world's problems rather than the problem. Um, and so all this stuff was kind of like, like swirling as I was watching uh, the first film and I thought, we gotta make a sequel um, because this is really messed up. And that was before Trump was elected. But
1: there's a line that really hit me in the, the sequel, The Offensive Charm Offensive.
0: Right. right Can you exactly. talk about that?
1: Because that was, you know, I think anybody who comes from the environmental world at all right now is going, wow, isn't it great that this company's trying to do this to help the planet. And you sort of call BS. So I'd, Pretty much all of the things that we're all hoping to believe in. Can you talk about that and break some hearts?
0: Yeah, I mean, BS. You know, it's it's unfair to bulls to say that their shit is as bad as um, what's going on here. It's it's worse than BS, and and what I mean by that is, you know, there are a number of ways to look at this new movement on the part of corporations to to be good. Um, in the new film and in the book we basically uh say that it's very similar to the charm of the psychopath you know the first film we show that the corporation is a psychopath one of the points in the second film is it's found its charm and we actually show how in 2011 the american psychiatric association added charm Uh, to its diagnostic checklist. So in the film, we make something of that and we say, you know, they they put it in and actually (laughs) that kind of fits the bill here because that's what all of this new corporate social responsibility and sustainability is about. Now, the subtitle of my book uh, is how good corporations are bad for democracy. And as you were just suggesting, that's kind of a, a sad tale and it runs counter to uh, many people uh, who I respect greatly in the environmental movement, in the human rights movement, uh, in uh, workers' rights movements, and all kinds of movements that say, "Look, isn't it good that that they're at least trying to be better? Isn't isn't that I mean, how can that be bad? Better is better than worse." So you know, let's applaud them and and say, obviously, it's not enough, and obviously, it's not the solution, but it's better than nothing. And my argument uh, in the book, and and it's the argument in the film, is that it's actually worse than nothing. And it's not just worse than nothing because it's deceiving us. It's worse than nothing because the deception is really dangerous. Because what I realized through doing the research, through going to Davos and you know the World Economic Forum meeting, through talking to you know corporate leaders and and Klaus Schwab, the head of the World Economic Forum, and people like Richard Edelman, sort of major pundits and consultants in the business world. All of these people were saying the same thing. And the story goes something like this. Around 2004, 2005, we heard the message, we upped our game, we decided that we were going to embrace social responsibility and sustainability as core values, as sort of baked right into our very natures as corporations, no longer just these peripheral sort of philanthropic projects. And so we were going to, and, and I mean, if you go to any website of any major corporation, you'll think you'd accidentally landed on the website of an NGO. You know, it's all about saving the world. Like it's not about making money anymore. It's about saving the world. So so far, you know, you can say, well, Joel, like what's wrong with that? At least they're trying again. And what I found when I talked to people and I did research is that the story had two parts. The first part is we become good, or at least we become better, or at least we're trying to be better and to be good. The second part was, therefore, we don't need to be regulated anymore. Therefore, we can take charge of solving environmental problems and climate change. Therefore, Uh, We don't need to be told what, how to treat our workers because we're good now, so obviously we're going to treat them well. Therefore, we can run your schools, we can run your water systems, we can run social services. And so what I learned and what I realized is that this movement for corporations to be good, the new corporation movement, as I describe it, is actually a play for complete control and power. It's actually the velvet glove that the fist of what's often referred to as neoliberalism is now in. Back in 1995, nobody had illusions. Corporations were pushing the idea, deregulate, markets are great. privatize, markets are great. And everybody said, okay, markets must be great. Let's do that. But then the anti-globalization movement came along, films like the first corporation came along and people were saying, no, 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 markets aren't great. There are all these other values that we need to pay attention to like the environment, like social good, like equality, and markets won't get us there. And so corporations smartly said, yeah, we agree. We need to embrace those values too. And that's what we're gonna do. But the quid pro quo, the exchange was that we'll embrace those values and therefore we no longer really need democratic governments because we now are publicly minded We now are concerned about the public interest. We now care about the environment and equality. So why do we need government to tell us what to do? I'll just make one final point on this. It sounds conspiratorial, it sounds fanciful, but honestly, when I talk to people like Richard Edelman, the sort of architects of this idea of the new corporation, and I'm quoting directly, Uh, from something Richard Edelman told me while we were standing in the main square in Davos, Switzerland, at the World Economic Forum meeting. He said, I'm not much of a believer in political citizenship. I believe in the power of the marketplace. Now, this is a person who is considered to be a leader of this whole, you know, purpose, social responsibility, sustainability. He's one of the good guys in capitalism. And so my real concern is about the good guys, uh, the the Davos people, the people pushing sustainability and corporate social responsibility, uh, because it really is, I think, uh, a play for more corporate power, more corporate impunity, and less democracy. And that scares the hell out of me. OK, that's seriously
1: horrifying. So the accomplishment of the corporation and all of these amazing movements, what? I, w- I was floored to me the, the funniest most shocking and most horrifying thing in the sequel was that they added charm to the definition of, of uh, psychopath and you you know corporations like you said they've added charm
0: <laughs> yeah and and use it very effectively I mean look who's going to be the more effective psychopath? The psychopath that appears as a psychopath or the psychopath that appears as a caring individual. You know, it's fairly obvious. Uh, the, the sort of, you know, blood dripping, fanged psychopath, we're gonna run like hell, you know? But when the psychopath comes and says, I really care about you, I really do. And I'm here to help you. Well, that's uh, when we get seduced and, and that's the more dangerous version.
1: The best villains are always charming. Exactly. Uh, Wow. Uh, Now, looking at how this has come together, you shot an astonishing amount of this. I mean, I know you've been working on this movie forever. I was floored by how much of it was up to the second in terms of COVID shooting and stuff like that can you talk about what you decided to leave on the cutting room floor and how you decided to adjust this to deal with COVID? Because I, I mean, I'm genuinely astonished looking at this movie. This is that it looks like you finished it last week. And yeah. I know you've been working on it for ages.
0: Yeah, we had been working on it for ages and we'd actually locked picture um, right before COVID hit North America. And you know, as as I'm sure you know, like locking picture is a huge deal because that is what triggers all the sort of post-production sound, audio, all of that music, composers, all that stuff. And so in order to make your deadlines, you need to lock picture to leave plenty of time to do all of that. So it's a huge deal to break lock. and. Uh, uh, Jennifer Abbott, my co-director, and Peter Roick, uh, our editor, uh, you know, we sat down and we just said, we're gonna have to go to the producers and, and just say, we can't ignore COVID. And not only can we not ignore COVID because it is a um, major event, uh, but we can't ignore COVID because it's a major event that ties into every single theme that we look at in this film, both in terms of, the uh, uh, difficulties and challenges of corporate power and the way it corrodes society and democracy, um, but also the ways that we push back against corporate power, uh, the ways that the pandemic was bringing out the sense in us that, wow, there are values uh, beyond economic values. There are values about caring, about concern, um, about selflessness, uh, about caring about health and life more than money. Like all of that stuff, it, it seems seems kind of old now, but when, when COVID first hit, um, that was a real revelation that all of a sudden, you know, it, it, this, this notion that, the economy above all, the economy has to keep going. You know, All of that just kind of stopped. I mean, airlines were shutting down, stores were closing. And it was like, we need to do this to protect vulnerable people. And, and it was like this, this revelation that all of the myths of the last 40 years, economy above all, it's the economy, stupid, all of that was so thin that all it took was a major crisis and our humanity started to bubble up and and so that's part of the film too and so for all those reasons we 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 just you know we had to include it uh we went out we you know we begged and borrowed literally asked relatives uh, for more money in order to keep shooting and and keep going and and keep making this film um and, and we, we built it in. We went back to a lot of the people who we'd interviewed in the film and we did this kind of interview. We called them bunker interviews. We did Zoom interviews with them and then sort of cut them into the film, uh, which was an aesthetic challenge, but I, I think, I hope we made it work. And, you know, then we sort of broke out the champagne again to celebrate, okay, we've locked picture and you know, raised our glasses and had a drink about it. And then um, George Floyd was brutally killed by police. Uh, and there was this incredible uprising that came as a result. And again, we sat down and said, okay, we have to go back to the producers and we have to break the lock again and we have to get more money and we have to deal with this because again, it dealt with every aspect of our film, the the colonial roots and the roots in slavery, of contemporary corporate capitalism, the uh, the the sense of collective power in protesting against that, uh, Black Lives Matter. I mean, all of that stuff. And and so we went back to the drawing board, and um, and again sort of made a, another ending to the film. And it was very challenging as a writer, uh, as as co-director, uh, Peter Roick as an editor was absolutely brilliant uh, dealing with, um, uh, you know, composers and soundscapers and all of that uh, and making it all work and, you know, getting it done in time was, was a huge and difficult challenge, but I don't think Honestly, I don't think we had a choice um, because both of those events, COVID and the Black Lives Matter uprising um, are, are just just absolutely central parts of the story. And it's hard to imagine the film without there being in it.
1: Now, the focus of this podcast is Orcas, Oceans, The Environment. And I think this is the longest I've ever gone without mentioning any of the <laughs> above but I know this ties into all of them. Can you please talk for a moment about a concept that I've gotten into with orcas a lot, which is personhood? Because I find it fascinating that if you can explain uh, as somebody who understands personhood intimately, how a corporation is a person, but an orca isn't.
0: Well, I mean, you'll have to indulge the law professor and me to give a, uh, a short, uh, hopefully not too dull lecture about corporate law. So if we go back to Rome, uh, the Roman empire, which is where a lot of our legal systems in Europe developed out of, and legal systems in Asia, for example, China and, De- and Japan were very much uh, dependent on uh roots in German law for European civil law, and across the um the English-speaking world and and in India, um uh it's very much rooted in English law. And so it's fair to say that uh most of the world's major legal systems are rooted in um the sort of uh, ancestry of of Roman law, and and then as that branched out uh, into the two sort of large systems of European civil law and British common law, and then European powers colonized most of the world and imposed their legal systems on those countries and most, in most of those countries, uh, legal systems continue to be rooted in those. So, uh, so I think I've made the point that European law is kind of the hegemonic law in the world. Now, European law is fundamentally anthropocentric. Uh, anthropocentric. It's fundamentally anthropocentric in the sense that in all of those legal systems, only human beings are subjects of the law. Only human beings can have rights, liabilities, responsibilities, obligation under the law. Everybody else and everything else is an object of the law, is something that can be owned, for example. And sometimes in slave systems, for example, human beings are turned into objects of law and no longer are subjects of law. So that's kind of how the law works. It says human being is is all that we recognize as a subject of law. Sometimes we take large groups of human beings and say that they're not human beings for the purpose of law. And then sometimes we take non-human beings and say they are persons for the purpose of law. And that's what we do with corporations. And the reason we do that is because capitalism requires that. And what I mean by that is with the rise of industrial capitalism, there was a need to create huge pools of capital. You didn't need it before. You were just building a mill on the floss, right? You didn't need uh, tons and tons of money to build that mill. So you didn't really need the corporate form. What the corporate form did in the mid uh, 19th century was it said, we need, we, we need a vehicle to create huge pools of capital in order to build railroads and steamship lines and factories. Because now we have this thing called the steam engine. We can do industry at scale, but to do industry at scale, we need a lot of money. So what we're gonna do is rather than just rely on the small group of people who run a business to own it as well and invest in it, we're gonna say anybody can invest in an enterprise so that potentially we can have a million people putting, investing $10, $20, $100, and we can create a huge pool of capital that we need to build the railroad. So that is what the corporation did. So we're gonna separate ownership from management. So the owners are gonna be all these anonymous shareholders and they are gonna hire directors and managers to run the company, but they're just gonna be kind of out there and anonymous. The problem was that if you're an anonymous shareholder or you're a, you're just a, a person, a guy or a gal out there, a person out there, um, you're not going to put your money into an enterprise if you might be liable if things go sideways. You don't want to lose your house, for example. So you need to be protected from liability if things go sideways for the company. How do you do that? It's called limited liability. You've all heard of it. So you as a shareholder are limited in in your liability, meaning that if you put $10 into a corporation, the worst case scenario is you lose that $10. But if the corporation goes belly up or creates a huge oil spill or something like that, nobody can come and sue you. Corporate law says that you're, you're not liable. Okay, well, if you're not liable and things go wrong in the corporation, who is? Who are you gonna sue? Who is gonna be responsible? And in in terms of ownership of property and things like that, who's gonna own it? If all the shareholders are invisible, hiding behind the corporate veil, as it's called, hiding behind limited liability, if they're not really operators in the corporation, who is? Well, you could go after the managers and the directors, the real people who are running the thing, but nobody's going to take on that job if they're going to be the ones who foot the bill for huge disasters and problems that the corporation may have. So the rabbit out of the hat—that's created uh, the alchemy—is to say, "Hey, here's an idea. Let's just create a fictitious person that'll be liable when the shit hits the fan." So, so the. The shareholders won't be liable, the managers won't be liable, the directors won't be liable, but this thing called the corporation will be liable. And it'll also have rights, it'll own property, it'll hire workers, it'll enter contracts. But to do all those things, it has to be a person because since Roman times, only human beings are subjects of law. So bingo, magic, alchemy, will make it a person. So the corporation gets to be a person because that's what capitalism requires, because capitalism needs those huge pools of capital, huge pools of capital require that shareholders invest their money, shareholders will only invest their money if they won't be liable, so you have to limit their liability, and then you have to find somebody who can operate in the economy legally, so you create the fictive person. That's how it works. So why are orcas? not persons at law because capitalism doesn't require it. In fact, capitalism requires the opposite. Capitalism requires that orcas be objects of law, that they be ownable, so you can put them in aquariums, or you can harvest uh, you know, oil from whales or exploit them in numerous ways in the way that nature is an object of law and is exploited all over the place. So, To answer your question briefly, (laughs) that was a long answer. Um, Orcas are not persons uh, because capitalism doesn't require it. And the law is fundamentally uh, anthropocentric. And so they can't be subjects under law unless we make them so. Now, the final wrinkle is that there have been movements that have said, we should say that certain parts of nature are subjects of law rather than objects, like a river or a forest. And there's some movement towards that in New Zealand, in Ecuador, there have been experiments in that idea. And you could do the same with orcas, but how do you decide who gets to be a person? Why orcas and not dolphins? And you know why dolphins and not chairs or trees or you know so so i guess what i'm saying is probably the fundamental problem lies with the fact that law is anthropocentric and all of these ways of trying to get around that are really not dealing with that fundamental problem if you go to indigenous legal systems they're not anthropocentric in the same way uh, and I don't want to essentialize here, but there is a kind of unified thread through indigenous indigenous cosmology that sees earth, mother earth as having subjectivity, as something that we as human beings have responsibilities towards, as in that sense, being a subject, not an object to exploit, to own, et cetera. So the takeaway from all of this is that the problem with our current European-based, Roman-based legal systems is that they're anthropocentric. They make one exception because it's needed for capitalism to work. And the question we have to ask is, do we wanna work within that system and just try to kind of on a piecemeal basis, extend personhood to, to this, set of trees or to that river or to to this orca? Or do we want to really rethink this whole cosmology in a way that's inspired by other cosmologies, uh, in particular indigenous cosmologies, um, that really have a totally different framework and where nature and earth are in fact subjects, not objects?
1: Thanks for that. Uh, what I've found fascinating is I know there have been fights for rights, for individual uh, in always captives for individual captive animals, mammals, uh, some apes, some orcas, especially apes to have personhood standing before the courts. And I made the leap from that going, okay, why are we making the personhood case for this gorilla? Why aren't we making the personhood case for, say, the Southern residents of say, Sea, see where we're going. Okay. They have, the, the more I've looked into this, they have every single trait that we declare makes us human that does not require opposable thumbs. If you sit down and go, what are the things that we go, these qualify us as human. They've got them all, right? They've got culture. They've got language. They've got They know how to use tools. All of the things that scientists have put up as the arbitrary blocks that set us above the other beings on earth, they take that hurdle down and it fascinates me that, you know, what you were saying, capitalism can't allow it because what happens if you go, well, you know what? These orcas, they actually have a legal right to a clean habitat. They actually have as much of a legal right to those Chinook salmon as we do so basically this is about if we give them rights it breaks the law it doesn't like it doesn't break the law it actually breaks the capital l law because everything's up for grabs
0: yeah i mean i i think that's i think that's right and i i think the you know ultimately it's about power and dominion i mean what what the orcas don't have is power and dominion over the human societies that do have power and dominion. In a way, they're victims of colonialism, of an imposition of a legal system that's premised on human dominion. Uh, In the same way that colonialism has worked to enable uh, Northern white societies to dominate um, Southern societies, uh, communities of color, indigenous communities, and to impose, impose the cosmologies and legal systems of those Northern European based societies on everybody else and on everybody else, including all of nature, including orcas. So. So sure, you can, you can make the argument, you can make the conceptual argument that, uh, you know, orcas have all the qualities that should give them legal subjectivity. Uh, but the problem with conceptual arguments is, is that they're conceptual. And in the face of power, uh, they will they can make a dent, they can cause criticism, and I think it's really useful to make these arguments because they reveal the um, the blindness and the power of prevailing systems. Um, but ultimately, uh, human beings are going to have to say, "Oh, okay, you know, we will will grant them personhood. We'll grant orcas personhood. We'll grant gorillas personhood. We'll grant a river personhood. We'll grant." a forest personhood. The whole cosmology of liberal legality, of the of the legal systems that come out of Rome and, and then Europe is about dominion. They're about property and they're about humans and a fairly small group of humans in the world um, imposing their power on everybody and everything else. And, and that's what we have to challenge.
1: I've talked to some animal rights lawyers both on and off the record, and they just keep going back to, yeah, if we argue this beyond one gorilla, if we argue this beyond one elephant or one particular whale, no court is ever going to want to hear this because, you know, as uh, Laurie Marino told me, she said, it all comes down to McNuggets. At what point, you know, at what point does it become illegal to eat a chicken McNugget if you've started to grant personhood to apes, orcas, dolphins, animals that have the qualities that we consider human,
0: yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a really tough one. And I think that there are sort of two two strains of of thinking that as um, as people and activists concerned about, Non-human animals uh, engaging with the law. Uh, there are these these two strains. One strain is to kind of accept the reality of the anthropocentric nature of law, and rather than pursuing personhood kinds of arguments, simply pursue um, regulatory protection kinds of arguments. I mean, there are uh, examples of laws that. Um, I mean, there aren't lots, but you can certainly can construct laws uh, that ban uh, cruelty to animals, uh, that ban um, habitat destruction of animals, uh, that restrict uh, large container ships uh, from going through areas that are orca habitats. I mean, you can do all of that with law, and and that's about politics. And that's without challenging the fundamental Anthropocentric nature of law. Um, You can you can say we're going to make decisions as democratic societies or um, as litigators to say that animals, uh, non-human animals, need these kinds of protections, and that that is because it is simply cruel and inhuman. To do otherwise, and we can try to push those arguments. You know, we can try to push them to uh, to ban industrial farming, for example, um, to uh, even you know, in some world that we don't currently inhabit, even to ban uh, eating meat. Uh, you know, there, there, there there's no limit to what we as democratic societies can do with law to try to effectuate policies that we the people uh, believe should be effectuated. That doesn't challenge, as I say, the anthropocentric nature law it doesn't challenge the fact that it's we as human beings that are making these decisions, um, but it, it can do a lot of good in the space of trying to protect non-human animals. So that is one route. And the other route, of course, is, is the route that we've been talking about, which is to extend actual rights and thereby subjectivity in law um, to uh, various non-human animals and and thereby um, grant them uh, the protection uh, that that entails, protection from being killed, protection from being exploited, and all of that. The first route that I've laid out is probably the more um, strategically um, uh, productive route. The second route. Is the more symbolically productive route, and you know if if I were advising uh, lawyers who are pursuing these kind of cases, I would say and 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 scholars and activists and everybody else, I would say go both routes at once. and that is in effect what uh, people in in this space of activism do.
1: Thanks for that. Uh, one now. I think the line between corporations being able to do whatever the heck they want and our oceans and environment ending is a pretty clear one. But so that nobody thinks that I've forgotten that this is a podcast about oceans. Can you talk a little bit about what corporations basically self-governing governing means for the way our fisheries are handled, the way our oceans are handled, the the pollution in the gyres, like what, can you talk a little bit about the impact to the planet of what you deal with in the corporation and the new corporation.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, in the book, I go into this in, in more detail than than we do in the film. But one of the things that uh, we take on in both projects is this notion that corporations can regulate themselves, that they don't need to be constrained by, by laws, uh, by mandatory laws, uh, but that they can that they will voluntarily uh, do the good thing and pursue best practices. And this is an idea that really goes hand in hand with the new charm of the corporation, with the new idea that corporations are socially responsible and sustainable. Um, because the basic argument is because we are now socially responsible, you can trust us to regulate ourselves, you don't need to impose regulations upon us. And that is the basic uh, idea that's out there and it's fueling uh, deregulation and the the movement towards self-regulation. Now, I only need to sort of put the question on the table, do you think self-regulation is a good way to deal with a psychopathic individual to uh, give a sense of why this is problematic. If you take a corporation, which is, as I've suggested, legally constituted always to have to pursue its own interests above all others, and you say regulate yourself, you can be sure that it will regulate itself, but only to the point where its own interests uh, might be compromised. So it'll only go so far as its own self-interest will allow it to go. And when you look at the evidence of self-regulation and many scholars have, and they've done studies and and whatnot, um, the unsurprising conclusion is that it doesn't really work. And it doesn't work because corporations will never sort of uh break the 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 sound barrier of uh going beyond what is in their own self-interest so they'll regulate themselves to an extent maybe they'll recycle a bit more maybe they won't put as much crap in the ocean maybe they'll uh try to use less uh, water in their production Uh, maybe they won't um uh, produce plastic straws anymore you know they'll things will be done For sure, maybe they'll produce plastics that are biodegradable, they'll do things, but they'll only do things that they can make a buck from. Uh, The way it's usually described is they'll do well or by doing good. So they'll only do the kind and the amount of good that will enable them to be well. And that is not nearly enough good to protect our oceans, protect our environment, protect non-human animals, protect our atmosphere, protect us from climate change, all of those protections require mandatory laws and standards and prohibitions uh, that are not beholden to corporate bottom lines, but that are beholden to the public interest and planetary um, health. So. As long as the amount and kind of good that's being done in terms of self-regulation is dependent upon what will or won't enable a corporation to do well, it's going to be disastrous. We're not going to have effective regulation. Uh, There's an economist named Willem Booter who said, and I, I think I quote him in the book, but he said, uh, self-regulation is to regulation as self-importance is to importance and self-righteousness is to righteousness. And I think that pretty well sums it up. Nice.
1: Now, what do you recommend citizens do? What do you rem- if Somebody's listening to this right now going, okay, this all sounds hopeless and bleak. Is there anything that I can do to help Save the planet. What yeah. would you recommend?
0: Yeah. So I, I mean, the book and the film, and on hopeful, albeit not necessarily optimistic, notes. Um, and you know, for, just speaking from a personal perspective, there's really, there's really no point, in my view, in doing the kind of work I do, um, if if I don't have hope. I mean, what's the point? In criticizing the world, if if you don't believe uh, that it can be changed, and so, you know, what should we do? I mean, going back to the top of this podcast, and you mentioned the people in the environmental movement, and uh, we can add other movements as well, who have been seduced by uh, this notion that corporations uh, can, in fact be good in in meaningful and genuine ways. Uh, The World Wildlife Fund is a perfect example of an an organization that has really thrown in its lot uh, with corporations and really uh, drinks the Kool-Aid of the corporate world and is quite unapologetic and defensive about its various alliances uh, with corporations and the kinds of things it does. So I think the first thing I would say to to people in the activist space um, is be realistic about what you can expect from corporations, regardless of their turning on the charm, regardless of their seductive websites and annual social responsibility reports, regardless of the fact that they have mega amounts of money that they can throw uh, at various uh, genuinely good projects, um, just be really uh, realistic about not only what you can expect from them in a particular realm, but about the model that they are touting for how we as a world should move forward. Uh, A model of voluntary self-regulation a model of privatization, a model of slashing the budgets of regulatory agencies, of slashing corporate taxes. That is the model that they practice. And that is the model when they're being honest, they endorse. And and so really be um, skeptical, really be concerned, and really be, I guess, Reimagine what you need to do as a democratic citizen to get this world back into democratic control and out of the hands of corporations. You know, we've been also seduced to believe that our only real power comes from in our roles as consumers. And this is another issue that we address in the book and film. Um, we've been seduced to believe that. Governments are useless and can't really do anything, and corrupt, and and all of that. I think what we're seeing now in a lot of movements is a pushback against those ideas. What we're seeing in the AOCs of the world, uh, in the uh, Mayor uh, Colau in Barcelona, who we feature in the film, in in uh, in the Bernie Sanders movement, and all of the sort of progressive politicians that it spawned around the world, in Canada and elsewhere, what we're seeing I think is a rediscovery of democratic large P politics as something that activists should be doing and need to be doing, uh, not just occupying the streets, not just occupying uh, the squares of cities, but actually occupying the institutions of government and bringing into those institutions uh, values that are um, uh, that that belie this sort of hegemony of of economic and corporate values that uh, have built up and deepened over the last 40 years so that's where i see hope it's this uh it's this new convergence of activism and large p-democratic politics uh that's where i think we need to go that's the direction um, that will take us to the kind of world we wanna live in.
1: Nice. Now, I've got a question for you that has come up uh, when I watch both corporations, but especially this one. Why are you never on screen? Why are you behind the scenes since you're the guy who literally wrote the book on corporations? And I'm curious about the choice being that.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's it's obviously a filmmaking choice and it's something that we went back and forth on. uh for in both films for both films actually um and i you know i i maybe i'm a fairly traditional uh documentarian i i i like the material to speak for itself i like the argument to uh to be apparent rather than made i guess is is the best way to put it and as soon as i show up on screen Um, it, it becomes me making the argument and, and I guess I believe maybe it's the lawyer in me that if you put the evidence together, if you have the kind of analytical narrative, um, then, then the argument develops its own life through the evidence, through the analysis, um, through in the case of film, the various uh, musical and visual cues that, uh, that give it emotional heart, and through in the case of writing, um, language. Um, through all of those things, the, the argument kind of takes on its own life. The point of view takes on its own life. And, and to me, that's a beautiful thing in art. And, and in not just art, but in scholarship, and i feel like if i show up it then it becomes kind of more more a michael moore uh, approach you know me trying to sort of make convince you and maybe make you laugh and try to entertain you and and all of that and 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 i, I mean it's just i guess it's just a very personal thing i feel that that something gets lost in that Something gets lost in that. If you can really craft a beautiful work, uh, whether a film or a book, and and really just make it work on its its own, um, it goes out into the world uh, as as its own person. <laughs> to get back to the idea of personhood, and uh, and I don't want to get in the way of that.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much for doing this. And, and thank you for the movie and all the work that you've been doing.
0: Well, thanks for having me on and thank you for all the work that you've been doing. It's fantastic work. And, uh, you know, we're all on the same path and in the same struggle.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much for doing this.
0: It was great hanging out with you a bit, Mark, and, uh, hopefully we'll see you again before 17 or 18 years. Oh,
1: that will be lovely. <laughs> All right. Take yeah. care. All right. You
0: take care. Bye bye. Bye.
1: Thanks again for checking out Scanna. Scanna is produced in Saanich, BC, traditional territories of the Wasanich, Songhees, and Esquimalt peoples. If you like the podcast and want to help us share more stories about orcas, oceans, ethics, and the environment more often, please join our pod at patreon.com. If this podcast doesn't work for you, I'm Monsanto. I'd like to thank all our Patreon patrons, including Robert Anderson, Nancy Campbell, Darren Laren young Solomon Siegel, Kat Dodds, The Green Channel, Kayla, and Yosef Wask. Feel free to join this list at patreon.com backslash skana, S-K-A-A-N-A. You can also support us at Scanna.org with one-time donations through ko-fi.com. Scanna is also brought to you by Orca Publishing, publishers of my three books about whales for younger readers, Orcas of the Salish Sea and Big Whale, Small World, both of which were selected by the Canadian Children's Book Centre for their list of 2020's Best Books for Kids and Teens, and Orcas Everywhere, winner of the City of Victoria's Children's Book Prize. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast and our newsletter so you don't miss upcoming episodes with guests like world-renowned primatologist Franz Waal, author of Mama's Last Hug, and Julia Barnes, director of Sea of Life and the upcoming documentary Bright Green Lies. Also, be sure to check out our show notes at Scanna.org and our ScanA magazine on Medium. Follow us on social media, share the show with your friends, share it with strangers. Everybody has plenty of time to listen right now. And reviews on your favorite podcast providers are always appreciated. Scan is produced by the always awesome Raymond Banu. Our epic associate producer and audio engineer is Isabella Almashi. Thanks to web wizard Katie Brown, social media maven Liz Flick-Bellis, and her behind-the-scenes team, including Maeve Milligan and Brian Murphy. Scanna's theme, Scanna, is by Leah Abramson. I was trying to think of the perfect song to end off this episode about the new corporation and just kept coming back to this classic by Neil Young. This note's for you. for you